What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm John, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Nate. How's it going, brother? Pretty good. How are you doing, John? <laughs> I'm doing all right, man. You know, it's been a long week. Uh, we're not, listen, folks, I'm going to address it now. We're not going to talk about any of that there Nigerian dwarf stuff going on in the community. Maybe at a later date, but not today. Today, we have Kurt Schnifke. Uh, he is of Overboard Dairy Goats. Kurt has been showing goats for 23 years when he started in 4-H with a weather and has been breeding Oberhasley for 21 years. Oof. Kurt also breeds beautiful Sonnens and now a La Mancha. Kurt has had many accomplishments in the ring. He's had the 2010 National Champion and 2011, the 2018 Reserve National Champion, owned the 2010 and 2011 Premier Sire, has had Ghetto Sire, and has finished many does. Kurt excels at consistency and general appearance and mammaries and those gorgeous heads. If you go to a show and his animals are there, you don't even have to ask. You see the gorgeous heads and bodies and mammaries and just know. Kurt is also a judge as well. And you can see him in the ring from time to time. Welcome to, this co- to the show, Kurt Schnitke. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here and um, excited to dive into the topics and answer some questions you guys throw at me. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. Now, we, we've, we've spoken for quite a while, ever since I've decided to add one of your animals to my herd. Um, and honestly... Uh, throughout that time of, uh, I like to stay in contact with any breeders that I purchase animals from. Um, and throughout that time, I, I've, I consider you a, a pretty close friend. So uh, I'm really excited to have you on here. Oh, well, yeah. And the, the feeling is mutual. Um, I think one of the benefits of being in a breed that is not quite as popular as far as numbers is mm-hmm. that the, the community is even smaller. And when the dairy goat community in and of itself is already a small community, and then you, you narrow it down a bit smaller within your own uh, focus breed, you either become friends with them or you don't. And it's easier just to become friends with people. Yep. <laughs> That's for sure. Yep. Yeah. Every subset has uh, people that, that kind of gather around with each other. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you're in our subset. I know that you have Sonnens and, and the La Mancha now, um, but we know you love those over Hosley. Uh, so, yeah. So, <laughs> with that intro, no. Kurt, um, can you kind of give us like an elevator pitch about you and your farm? Oh, a quick elevator pitch on the farm. So, um, I guess it all started with um, my dad wanted my sister and I to have a 4-H project, specifically an animal to teach us some responsibility and um, teach us a little bit about kind of the the facts of life and sometimes the hard knocks of life. And Mm -hmm. so um, my dad had grown up raising uh, dairy cows and then later uh, feeding out dairy steers. And so he initially wanted cows, but we didn't have a barn at the time. And my mom thought that raising two steers in our garage would be a little bit of a challenge. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we went to a 4-H meeting and asked the advisors, you know, what can we, what can we raise? What's something that we're not going to have to put tons and tons of money into? Insert major laugh right here. (laughs) Yep. 
<laughs> and it was suggested that we do either pigs or goats. And at the time, my sister and I were both young enough that we didn't really think that the idea of doing pigs was that entertaining or appetizing to our, our uh, mindset. So goats kind of won by default. And so we started with a couple Nubian weathers and then uh, boar goats came in the next year, uh, basically so we could raise weathers for the county fair. And then um, as we became more competitive um, with namely showmanship, when we went down to the Ohio State Fair, um, some good friends and mentors of us, of ours, um, told us, hey, you know, you guys are pretty good at showmanship, but down here at the Ohio State Fair, this is a dairy goat show. Um, and you're never going to place real high in showmanship unless you have a dairy goat. And um, so we quickly started seeking out, okay, which breed do we, do we like? And um, it kind of came down between three breeds. My sister liked the Sonnens, my mom liked the look of Toggenbergs, and my dad and I both liked the look of Oberhasley. So by a vote of two to one to one, the Oberhasley <laughs> won out. And then I guess the rest, as they say, is history. It's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty spectacular history, if you ask me. I mean, there's quite a bit to, to say about your program. I mean, you, you've had a lot of accomplishments and, and honestly, I know I said it in the intro, but that consistency, I mean, you just know when you see one of your animals, it's, and I'm not, not sitting here kissing your feet or anything, but it's the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's just, there's some amazing animals that you churn out with that consistency. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate hearing that. I think the, the ultimate uh, compliment for a breeder um, is not necessarily the accolades that they may or may not accumulate throughout the years. It's knowing that other people can see the work and effort that they have put into their breeding program. Um, mm -hmm. And what, what I think is really, you know, even going one step further to me, uh, an even bigger compliment is having my own style of animal yeah. that others can then say, Oh, we can tell just by looking at that. That's one of yours, whether it be a distinctive featured head or, um, you know, mammaries are something that I take a lot of pride in and, and knowing that there's quite a few people now that have said, you know, your mammaries really stand out in the breed or whether that's uh, breed character or general appearance or, you know, any of a number of things that, you know, just hearing multiple other people say we can tell your animals just by looking at them, that that's such a compliment to me as a breeder and knowing that my style is um, becoming recognizable. Yeah. 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 Now you had, you mentioned you had boars starting out. Uh, how long were you racing those? And then when did you get out? Um, so we started raising boars in 2000. Mm -hmm. um, and we raised those primarily until 2002 when we got our first Obies. And then we continued raising boar goats until... It was either 2007 or 2008. I can't remember which year the, the boar goats left, but it, basically it was when my sister had finished 4-H and the county fair. We no longer needed market weathers mm -hmm. uh, for the county fair. So once she was done with 4-H, the boar goats kind of left and then dairy goats were able to take over the farm, so to speak. <laughs> now, did, were you guys competitive with your... 
boars or were they always you just bought a weather and 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 raised them up and then when the auction came for 4-H like every 4-H auction is uh they were gone well it started off with just weathers the first year um was just weathers the second year we had some bordeaux but they weren't old enough to be bred so we bought um one or two weathers a piece for my sister and i again that year and then sold them off mm-hmm. but then once we started breeding them my dad always had a philosophy that um, if we're going to win or we're going to be successful with what we're doing we're going to breed it ourselves we're not going to buy it um and so the the mantra was you know you have to breed it you have to feed it you have to show it and then you can win with it mm-hmm. okay. um and so we we never got into the open class show circuit with our boar goats. Um, it just wasn't something that my sister and I were very passionate about. Um, so we were very competitive at our county fair, which had a, a nice sized boar goat show. Um, and we won that a couple years uh, at our county fair. And other weathers that we sold and um, some does that we sold created weathers that won the county fair. But we never got into the open class show circuit with boars like we did the dairy goats, which was very clearly our passion once we got right. into those. For sure. So uh, now I know Nate has had a couple does kidding today. In fact, three. Uh, four, four is on three. the way. <laughs> four, number four is, is currently working on it. Um, are you, are you in the midst of kidding season now? Uh, yeah, interesting that you asked that question today. Um, I had one freshen early this morning about 1.30 or 2 a.m. and she was 17 days early. So I'm, I'm currently working with a preemie, um, something that I don't, I'll, admittedly, I don't like doing. I don't think anybody likes working with preemies, no. but, um, you know, you sometimes you look at that and go, okay, this is at least five months worth of work. If not, if you think about it, a year's worth of work on keeping that doe alive and managing her and the the sire alive. And so when you look at just the amount of blood, sweat and tears that you've put into trying to create that animal for the last year, you, you definitely always owe it to them and to yourself to try and do everything in your power to keep them going. So I guess uh, the, the long answer to that is yes, breeding season has officially started here at Overboard. Well, hopefully kidding season, not breeding, breeding season. Or kidding season, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. How many are you freshening out this year? <laughs> Did you say how many you are freshening out this year? So um, I'm freshening, I believe, 20 or 21, but who counts anymore, exactly. right? Yeah. It begins with a two, so I think it's about two-ish. Yeah. 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 It's it's like it's like goat math. You add two plus two equals two. 24, 23, <laughs> 19, somewhere in there. It depends whose goat math you're talking about because my <laughs> wife's goat math goat math is oh you want to keep that one sell eighty. Yeah, so, <laughs> just happens to be how that one works out. But we're working on her. I think this year I'll be able to keep more than one or two. <laughs> well, you need to you need to just remind her that Alice accounts for some of the total accumulation as well now. Well, that's where the two Guernseys come into play. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, no, so. you gotta, you gotta swap Merrimack to Alice's name or something. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, 
we mentioned the consistency and I really drilled in the the gorgeous heads that you have on your farm. Where did that was that a Pleasant Fields head? Because I feel like I see old photos of Pleasant Field uh, like Nick and, and I see that head. Um, is that where that came from or, or where did that originate? Yeah, I, I would have to say that it it originated in um, it's a Pleasant Fields uh, FDF Pleasant Fields type of thing, especially most notably in my herd, um, FDF Pleasant Fields Tornado, who was <laughs> the foundation doe. But um, so our other doe line that we really started with was um, Rachel C. Southern Breeze. And Breeze and um, Tornado share a common ancestor in Wendy and her sons. So I think it kind of has to go back to that in some, in some frame of mind because um, Breeze had a very pretty head and her, her daughters have had this, a similar head. But the strongest heads, the ones that most people really stop and comment about, um, such as Venti, uh, would be di- direct maternal descendants from Tornado. Okay. Now, with that consistency, I'd imagine that the that comes from kind of a line breeding. Yeah, there, I do some line breeding and I've been diving into it a little bit more and a little bit more as the years progress on. Um, in the beginning, of course, you know, when you're, when you're an early breeder, I don't think that line breeding is one of those things that you jump to right away because the, the, um, inclination is to bring in new genetics from herds that are better than your own. Mm-hmm. So line breeding isn't necessarily that first choice that you go to, but as I've continued to breed towards my own specific goals and things that I want to see, um, I think that line breeding has become a stronger tool for me. Now, just because I know some, I get asked this often by, uh, I want to say breeders who are just new to the dairy goat industry, you know, from your perspective, just because I know what I give them for an answer. Um, what's the difference between line breeding and inbreeding? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't um, like- you know, I, I've I've heard the the phrase when it works and they're pretty, then it's line breeding, and when they're ugly, then it's inbreeding. That's about what I say. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much uh now when we're talking line breeding some people stick to that 10 12 percent that's their comfort zone what kind of percentages do you work with with that you know i honestly don't look at it that close anymore i did maybe 10 or 15 years ago um i think if i do look at it what i i tend to notice is somewhere between the 8 to 12 percent um coefficient no that's not fair number of years ago, I knew you were trying to add in uh, some new genetics, you know, from the outside of your gene pool there. How often do you try to add something yeah. in? Um, well, I, I guess it's about every five years now, considering that I, I added uh, a La Mancha this past year. But, but is that going into your open, um, Leslie Heard? Yeah. They, um, they so... Yeah. I, I think it was 
it was really when I added in the the Alpine box. Um, first and foremost, yes, yes Fifty Shades him. from Noble Third. Yeah. So the the thing that I was really trying to do was add size and length and style that I just wasn't finding as consistently in the Oberhasley breed. Mm -hmm. uh, if I did find it, I would get a son or a brother and use that. And then they would throw nice things in my herd, but they wouldn't throw that size and scale or bone or style or stretch or, you know, one of those types of things that I was really looking for. They would give me other things, but they didn't give me what I was hoping them to give me. Mm -hmm. So I, I finally decided let's think outside of the box here and try an Alpine and just see what happens. And unfortunately he didn't give me very many doe kids. So um, that was kind of a short lived adventure. <laughs> and, but the, the ones that I did have, um, I mean the, the last 50 shades daughter that I had, um, she finished last year as a two year old and was reserve champion at the very competitive, or I guess it was 2019 already. I keep thinking last year because I, I'd like to forget 2020 as I think Amen. we all yeah, would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I often talk about, talk to people, yeah, last show season. There was no show season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess she finished um, two years ago, I guess now, and she was reserve champion at the, the Indiana State Fair, which is a very competitive yep. dairy goat show. Um, so for her to be reserve champion in the recorded grade division as a two-year-old, I was very proud of that. And, um, you know, last year when some cuts needed to happen, she was one that was just kind of not one of my favorites. And, um, so I got an offer that I couldn't refuse for her. And so she went on to greener pastures, but I guess, uh, my, my time in grades was in and out and very short lived because then later in the year, an opportunity for like we've said a couple of times now that La Mancha came up. And so I decided just to run with it and we'll see what happens there. So is that La Mancha bred to an Oberhasley this year? She is. Yeah. I, I brought her home um, from a show and um, my great friend Rosanna Cintron um, agreed to sell her to me. And um, so Firewater came home and interestingly, she came into heat the very next day. <laughs> wow. And so I thought, what the heck let's try breeding her and so i already knew i had showed her for rosanna once or twice and so i already knew what i wanted to fix on her the most and so in looking at my buck pen i decided one of my bucks um had what i thought would do it and so i thought oh let's just try this and then if she doesn't settle then that'll give me some time to maybe find some la mancha semen then i can try to ai her and she never came back in heat so <laughs> we've got some grade babies cooking well, that, that kind of leads into uh, actually one of our listeners uh, had a question. Hope Man asked uh, what your favorite breed combination for experimentals and, and recorded grades would be. Oh, boy. Well, I, I guess this year my the diplomatic answer is La Mancha <laughs> and Oberhasley, right? That's a great answer. I agree. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, and, and despite having that combination actively brewing right now, um, I remember the first really um, solid Oberhasley La Mancha cross dough that I can remember from my younger days was a dough named Hay Creek's Hussy. 
and she was, I believe, first place kid in the recorded grade show in 2006 at the national show. Um, but she was 100% Oberhasley marked, absolutely gorgeous, this deep, almost mahogany bay, and then just had these little tiny La Mancha ears. And I thought she was just absolutely beautiful. Even before she showed, we found her in the Hay Creek's pen, and my mom and I kept commenting on how pretty she was. And so I've always really liked that Oberhasley look um, mm -hmm. with La Mancha ears. But beyond that, because I'm a sucker for a, a bay with black markings, um, I think my favorite combination for recorded grades would honestly probably have to be um, anything with Toggenberg in it because I really just, there's something about that kind of mousy grayish color. Sometimes some people call it lavender. Some people call it gray. Mm -hmm. um, there's just something about that color when it comes through really strong that I just find really beautiful. Um, and so whether it's a, a Toggenberg Nubian cross, I've seen some of those that, that get kind of a, a bit of an airplane ear with that Tog color or a Toggenberg La Mancha cross. Um, I guess I would just have to say anything with that Tog type of a color um, in the recorded grades. I, I really like that color. Yeah, I, I agree. I like the Toggenbergs a lot. In fact, that was almost the, instead of Oberhasley, it was going to be Togs, but... The wife actually was the one that she said she didn't like their eyes. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. <And> now, <laughs> yeah. before, you know, when I got out of goats the first time here, uh, that was the last breed I had with togs. I had togs and sonnens. So I, I, I like togs. A nice, sharp togs. You know, well, it's, as I said, it's sharp. Um, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I think there's something to be said about <clears throat> those breeds or those color patterns where the body is a solid color and then they're almost outlined in a different color. So, you know, if you think of Oberhasley, they're, they're that deep, rich red bay and then yes. they're outlined in black or top that mossy or, or mousy gray and then outlined in white mm -hmm. or even a sun gal, which is black and then kind of outlined in white or light cream. Um, you know, your black and tan La Manchas where they're almost the flip-flop reverse of an Oberhasley. I think there's just something to be said about those types of color patterns that tend to be appealing and attractive to the yeah. eye. Yeah, there's, there's, 100%. there's a lot to that. Now, I got a question for you here, Kurt. Um, yeah. So this year, there's a lot of people hinging on linear appraisal, you know, to get back going this year so they feel they they can gauge their animals but we know that you don't appraise your herd if we remember correctly right um i don't actively appraise anymore i did in the beginning um i think the herd was appraised maybe four or five times between um, 2005 and 2000, I want to say 2012, mm -hmm. the last appraisal, um, was when the, um, uh, Tonka tails, Tipperary Prince daughters were okay. really in their prime. They were, I believe four and five years old at the time. And, um, I, I did well in appraisal most years other than my first year, which, um, I, I think anybody in their first year, it's used more as a, a learning lesson rather than 
just trying to see what types of scores you can get. Yeah. And, um, but the final year that I appraised, um, the does, I think, uh, even with first fresheners, I think I had a herd average in the high 80s. And if you took the first fresheners out, the herd average was above 90. Every, everything that was three or older that year appraised that's, 90 or above. Awesome. So, um, no. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate the I appreciate the linear appraisal program and I, I absolutely support all of those that are itching to get into the program and, and um you know hopefully the I'll call them former appraisers as I've seen many of them call themselves at this time. I I'm hopeful that they can get back to work and doing something that they love and enjoy out in the field and seeing other breeders, but it's just something that I have chosen not to use in my own herd anymore um for a few different reasons now do you find that because you're a trained judge do you do you find with that training that that helps you gauge where your herd's at yeah and i think that's one of the main reasons that i don't use linear appraisal um is more from the standpoint that i have now been judging goodness since 2007 mm -hmm. so what is that 13 or 14 years now yeah that's that's 14 years i would like to think that i have tuned my own eye into what my focus is mm -hmm. and what my goals are and not that i don't need somebody else to you know come in and and tell me some things or put some scores on traits or help me prove out genetics or sires. Um, but it's just one of those things that it almost muddies the water or almost clouds the vision when you have somebody else coming in and telling you uh, both good things and bad things about your favorites or not favorites. And I find that for me, it's easier if I don't have that additional extraneous information um, maybe pulling me in one way or another way. And it's easier for me just to make up my own mind. Right. And plus you have a vision for what you want in your herd and what you have in your herd. And I can see that point of view of, well, if you know what you want, do you need somebody to tell you what you have? Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, and, and I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I've been breeding or judging, excuse me, for long enough, and, and I guess breeding too, but I've been judging for long enough that by ADGA standards, I'm considered an, an advanced judge. And I know that judging and appraisal are separate, so I, I do not mean to offend any of the appraisers or their work, right. but I feel like at the advanced judge level, if I can't see my own goats and where they're going, then maybe I don't deserve that accolade as, of being known as an advanced judge. Oh, it, Does that it, make it, sense? No, it totally makes, makes sense. sense. Um, you know, it's what you, you touched on a point here of, of being able to look at your own herd and your animals and kind of, you know, get a feel for what you want and in the direction you want your herd to go. Um, I've recently been, you know, what we are on social media and, which I see periodically, and especially I think two or three times in the past week, someone asking, um, how do I get that eye? How do I get that, you know, to know what to look for? And usually the people asking are, are new to the dairy goat um, show circuit. 
and they want to know what to look for for their own purposes of being able to go out and pick a buck or pick a doe in the barn and say, I want to keep that one. Um, do you have yeah. any suggestions for a person like that of how to start training that eye? Yeah. So I have a couple of good suggestions that um, I know we used in our barn when I was younger and my parents were really wonderful when we were raising goats as a family in the, in the aspect that they, I think they recognized early on that I could see certain traits and certain structural categories um, because when we would go to shows, so I guess this would be my first um, tip is when we would go to shows and I was young and um, we would sit and watch the dairy goat shows. So of course, this is before we would bring a, a show string of 15 to 20 head. This is back <laughs> when being something manageable, like three and four goats was, was what you did. Mm -hmm. But during the other breeds, you know, because we were in, in the Oberhusley breed, we had three or four breeds before us that we would sit down as a family and either with a, a notepad or without a notepad, we'd watch a class come in. And then before the judge would line them up or give reasons, my mom or dad or both would say, okay, kids pick out which ones you like, and we'll do the same. And then we're all going to share our answers. And usually we would just say, okay, pick your top three. Cause I don't think, either of my parents expected us to be able to place them down the line like a judge would, but pick your top three, which three do you like best in this class or pick your favorite one. And let's see, you know, based on my sister's favorite one or my favorite one or my dad's or mom's favorite one, who ended up getting the highest placing consistently, you know, with where the judge placed them. And um, more times than not, mine was usually the one that was closer to the top than either my sister or my parents and so that would be a, a, a bit of advice is if you need to help train your eye, do that at multiple shows because each of the 100 plus licensed ADGA dairy goat judges has gone through rigorous training. And, um, you know, like this year, every one of us went through a virtual online refresher. And um, so there's, there's all sorts of ways that those judges have been verified as far as understanding the the way to utilize the scorecard and so they're going to be fairly consistent now of course there's always a little bit of personal bias or a little bit of a personal um interpretation i guess i should say rather than bias but interpretation of that mm -hmm. um unified so watching and placing in multiple judges you can start to figure out oh my eye i keep picking the one that the judge places dead last maybe i should be looking at a different style or my eye is finding something consistently in the middle or my eye is finding something consistently at the top. So I think that would be one um, method. Um, and my parents, as soon as they figured that, that out, that I could place animals in other breeds relatively well at that time, they gave me carte blanche to make all of the breeding decisions <laughs> every year. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what what greater leap of faith than your two parents giving a 12 and 13 year old complete freedom of, OK, you pick them out and we'll do it. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. And so um, the other thing that I would suggest is 
Um, whether you're just starting out or whether you've been doing it for a few years or if you've been doing it for 15 or 20 years or more and, and you just don't seem like you feel like you have a style or you, or you still feel like your eye needs trained, something that I did in the beginning is I would find two or three does specifically that I really liked. Um, and it didn't matter which breed. Um, you know, so for, for many years, it was usually an Alpine and a La Mancha. Um, I think I did have one Oberhasli, um, but I took pictures of them and I blew them up to eight by 10 size and framed them. And I hung them in the area that I milked in so that every single day while I was milking, I had to look up at those photos and have a reference in my mind of, okay, this is what I'm working toward. This is what I want my goats to look like just yep. in bay and black colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So you touched on a couple of things so there. The day that, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say the, the day that I got to add one of my own goats to that, that frame was kind of a, a fun day and, um, so Brie is still kind of in my mind. The, the frames no longer hang, but um, they do in my mind. And so um, one of my goats, um, Oberboard Brie, happens to be up in one of those places right now. And um, she might forever be up there. She was a pretty special animal. Her. Yeah, that she was. <laughs> yeah. No. Lily, Lily would probably be up there too. They were different styles and they, they had different strengths and weaknesses from one another. Um, Lily was a little more extreme in everything. She was, you know, longer necked and longer bodied and a little taller and just had this extreme udder. Um, but Brie was a little bit more balanced and square and compact and nothing was really out of place. Um, maybe not as extreme or as immediately eye catching, but the more you watched her and the more she moved and the more she functioned in the ring, the more you just had to keep watching her. And so I guess probably both of them would still be up there in my mind, um, but for different reasons. But Brie is, Brie holds a soft spot in my heart. As she should. So yeah. um, now you touched on a couple of things there and, and with you and your family watching classes and picking your top three, that's practice with you yeah. looking at these animals that you admire and hanging them up and looking at them and, and visualizing that's also you're training your eye. Uh, and and yeah. I know it's easy to say, well, train your eye to, to newbies and, and just look at goats. But honestly, as somebody who's newer into breeding, I live and breathe it. I'm reading everything I can. I'm looking at everything I can. I'm taking advice where I can. Um, I think, honestly, the, the biggest thing is just to, to get your brain function towards dairy yeah. goats. And yeah, and the ideal dairy goats, and and you'll be able to train it pretty quick. I mean, I'm yeah, I'd like to say I have a pretty decent eye, and I'm only in it. This is our fourth kidding season, right? <laughs> um, yeah. so that's very good points. And I hope anybody that's listening that that wants to take that advice, take it. Yeah, I think, um, one of the things that to kind of circle back a little bit and and tie into both training your eye and uh, I guess another reason that linear appraisal um, is no longer on my list of necessities for my herd mm -hmm. um, is with my eye, um, you know, pro professionally outside of dairy goats, I'm a physical therapist. And so, you know, the, the linear appraisal program 
you look at form and function and how they tie together. And um, while the species are different between goats and humans, my job every single day is to watch and analyze and assess form and function and movement patterns. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, my, my professional life really ties in nicely with having an eye trained to watch movement and function. And, you know, once you can then also train it into um, correlation of parts on a four-legged animal that's also lactating and, you know, walking around and having to eat to produce, um, you know, your eye starts to get pretty good when you're using it in both realms of yeah. both major realms of your life. I agree 100%. And, and that's honestly, I wish I had that much of an eye to be able to visualize how those muscles and, and bones should be moving as the animals moving. Um, I've always said that I'm pretty darn good at looking at pictures, but in person, sometimes I get a little, little swayed away uh, from, from yeah. realizing who's going to win what, just because I haven't seen as many live shows no. as everybody else. So I think no, that's, no, John, yeah, that's a good point. And I, I think it's just kind of what Kurt was doing is with his family. And it's one of the things that really helped me is it, it, Kurt did it with his family, but to get someone you can sit ringside with, look at a breed that you aren't mm -hmm. necessarily having to show, or maybe you're going in the ring next, you know, and you can look at those animals being shown and place them. You know, maybe you don't pick a 20 animal class, pick a smaller one that's five or six where you could, you know, in your mind, play it, move them around and then discuss it. Now, Kurt, did you, did your family, did you guys, I'm trying to remember if you mentioned, did you discuss while you, the class was in the ring, why you picked that animal for first? Um, I think we probably did a little bit. I honestly can't remember real clearly having tons of discussion about it, mostly because um, my mom, we sometimes like to joke, was a city mouse, um, <laughs> having only ever had dogs as pets. And my dad, even as a country mouse, he raised cattle and they were purely, um, you know, I would say like family milker cows that they, they sold milk in his younger days. And then when they transitioned to feeding out dairy steers, it was a terminal uh, animal. Yeah. So I don't know that form and function when you're only raising something to about one year old form and function doesn't have to equate to much more than can they walk to the feed bunk and live right, for a year right, and live yeah. till their slaughter day. <laughs> yeah. Totally different. So I think we, I think we would discuss it a little bit here and there, of course. Um, and, and more so my dad, cause he and I, that was our thing. Um, not that my mom didn't enjoy it, but she always joked that she loved the, the Martha Stewart moments, the preparing meals in the, <laughs> in the background scenes or setting up, um, our, you know, national show displays or our state fair displays that was, you know, decorating the pens mm -hmm. and, um, sweeping the aisles and, um, you know, running goats back and forth to and from the ring and taking photos of us or recording those special moments. She always said that she felt much more comfortable in those moments than actually being in the ring. Um, but my dad and I, you know, he having had a livestock background, I know we 
talked about it a little bit and would discuss, you know, maybe why I placed it this way or that way. But I think, you know, doing all of those things and, and giving a reason why you like something or dislike something um, when you're just doing it, you know, for funsies on the outside of the ring, or even, even if it's more for a, a personal goal of improving your own vision, um, it's important to know why you're doing yes. it. Not just that you're picking because anybody can pick one that looks good. Um, but you have to know why, and you want it to be consistent with maybe why that judge put them there as well. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're, if you're putting a, a pretty, um, Kublanc Alpine as first in her class because you like her color, that's probably not a very good reason and probably more luck of the draw if she ends up winning her class, if that was the exactly. reason why you put her there. <laughs> but if, if you're putting the same Kublanc in first because you really appreciate, you know, her strength of bone and her strength of feet and legs and her length and levelness of top line and strength of rump and, you know, that arch of the rear udder and medial suspensory ligament strength and teat placement and extension of fore udder. And then you hear the judge using similar phrases and terminology to or reasons why she's there. That's probably a good indication that you're seeing some of the correlation yeah. of parts that you should be seeing. I agree 100%. And, and that could actually correlate as well as training your eye to a pedigree you're looking at. You know, you, you and yeah. I have had conversations about registration hunters and, and pedigrees and and I think if you can read a pedigree and know those animals that are in it and what they were and how they looked, that helps you build an idea of what kids should look like in the long run uh, from whatever animal yeah. it is. I say should because genetics <laughs> are crazy. Uh, yeah. But... <laughs> I think, you know, that's a very good point that genetics are crazy, but there's also... Sometimes when I hear the phrase, um, you know, genetics or breeding is a crapshoot, sometimes, for, forgive me, but sometimes I, in my head, I like, I call BS on that. Mm -hmm. um, simply from the standpoint that, you know, if you look at the, just the fundamental structure of genetics, every single offspring of a mating inherits 50% of its traits yep. from each parent. Right. And so... You know, when you really think about that, you, you can't, I, I liken it to blue-eyed humans. You cannot, there is not a single possible manner in any way, shape, or form that a mother and father with blue, who, who both have blue eyes, if you get a, an offspring with anything other than blue eyes, um, we maybe need to have some different <laughs> adult conversations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because genetically you are bound to get that. And that, go that dives a little bit deeper than just, you know, percentages that starts to dive into dominant versus recessive traits. But, you know, if you think about it, um, your offspring, once they freshen, you should start to see, you know, little bits and pieces of that dam and little bits and pieces of that sire because they should have that. They're 50% they're of each of those parents. The hard part where it is a crapshoot and where I do agree with that, that phrase that genetics and breeding sometimes can be a crapshoot is, well, this 50% of the sire may be different than even the litter mate 50% from that sire and how they correlate and line up with that 50% from the dam. You can make the same breeding 10 times and get 10 somewhat similar looking animals, but also 10 
very different animals I, I, in I certain totally traits. Agree with that. Right. I can and tell you right so, now, we had um, going into this breeding season, this kidding season, three do- three does, uh, genetic full sisters who looked night and day. You you would never believe that any of the three were related to the other. But they were. They're genetic both sisters. Yeah. Uh, and they, they've yeah. all got different strengths or had different different strengths. But that's what you just said. It, it's, I can see that. You know, it's going into my barn. So yeah, I agree with yeah. you fully right there. Um, the other thing I want to, you, know, you mentioned, you know, it, it's kind of like a genetic crapshoot. I, again, agree with you, but it's one of these things that it's more like, it's not really genetic crapshoot, in my opinion. It's more like genetic calculus. Um, yeah. 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 Well, what I think it comes down to is uh, when you're looking at those pedigrees, if it, you'll tend to see a lot less consistency of what you're aiming for if it's a, just a total outcross. Um yeah, so it's just just the way it is. Um, so yeah. moving on, we've talked about your Oberhasley. We've talked about your La Mancha. We haven't talked about your Sonnen, so, dude. Sochi. <laughs> I know. They're, <laughs> they're, they're kind of the, the ones that sit back and, and just, you know, have to allow the Obies to have the spotlight and the limelight. And I, I try to feature them as much as I can with my social media presence mm-hmm. and uh, I really do love the Sonnens, um, you know, just like just like I would my Obies. Um, they're they're pretty special and and near and dear to my heart too. And um, one of the things about them is, um, at least the Sonnens that I have, and and in working with other Sonnen breeders and and just knowing the breed, they're such gentle giants, and they really lend themselves personality wise, very, very similar to the Oberhasley personality, which is a very laid back, non-aggressive, non-pushy, quiet, (laughs) let's put major asterisk next to that one, quiet, Um, because I do not tolerate loud animals. I don't like loud goats. I don't like judging in areas where there are loud screeching animals which is a necessity sometimes but um you know you still always just in your head go oh please just let them be quiet for 10 minutes so i can finish this class <laughs> um but I, I do not tolerate loud goats at all and um you know other than those first few days after them freshening um oh, you know yeah. where they're all a little bit loud um, and of course yeah and and goats are always going to be you know a bit louder and a little more vocal at feeding time and milking time and those types of things. Of course, I'm, I'm not heartless, but you know, goats that are screaming or have, um, you know, separation anxiety at show or, um, are only one person goats, things like that. I just, I, I don't like that personality and, um, certain breeds are known for being a little flightier or certain breeds are known for being a little witchier or a little bit more dominant or this or that. Um, you know, I, I just don't tolerate those things. And so um, the Sonnens fit in very, very well with the, with the. Well, that and they're gorgeous. They really are. You have very good yes. Sonnens. Now, one of your favorite, you, one of my you, favorite Sonnens is actually one of, 
guess she's an older though now. If she's still around, Sochi. Uh, yeah, so Sochi, um, she moved on to a family, a 4-H family last year that was looking for a son and milker. And I had um, two daughters of hers. And it was, again, one of those numbers crunching and figuring out, okay, if I'm doing my job right, Sochi is, is quite beautiful, um, especially her mammary system, um, which was very near ideal in, in my mind for what I, for what I want. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but it was one of those things that I knew that freshening two of her daughters and three of her sisters this year, I thought, uh, I probably don't need to hang on to Sochi anymore. And a 4-H family, you know, could really use a goat like this and both have some milk and have a fun dough to take to their county awesome. fair and, yeah. and do somewhat well with. That's awesome. Sorry for Shanghaiing your question there, John. Now, <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, <laughs> Uh, now, so you bred, does that mean you have three left in the barn? I'm trying to remember. Um, three son and does. Yeah. Uh, I have five son and does in the barn. Well, yeah. It's hard to keep track. Yeah. They, <laughs> they all did from what I consider my son and matriarch. She wasn't my first son and, but she's the first one that gave me doe kids. Oh. Um, Pleasant Grove uh, won gold medal um, was my, she was my heart goat um, until um, last year. She was quite old and um, as a responsible breeder and herd manager, um, she was left to cross Rainbow Bridge. Mm -hmm. um, but knowing that her presence in the barn having, um, there's three daughters and then two granddaughters. Awesome. Yeah. In the herd. So, so, so you bred all five this year? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Um, I attempted to breed all five this year. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of those that, yeah, I, I think, I think any breeder that has, you know, bigger numbers in their herd and by bigger, I mean, bigger hobby herd right. numbers like my own, certainly not dairy numbers, but um, so the, the youngest one is just a kid. Um, she started cycling late and I tried breeding her once. And then when she came back into heat, I decided, Oh, I can live with a dry yearling. Yeah. And, um, the bummer is that the, the oldest metal daughter, uh, will be open this year. Mm. So, um, you know, everybody had a weird year with breeding season. I mean, everybody across the board, I saw all over Facebook, 2020 was a weird breeding season. Yeah, it certainly was. And um, I had a harder time getting about three to five does bred this year than I've ever had. Um, and finally did get all but that one Sonnen and one um, OB um, dry yearling mm -hmm. that, well, I can't, I can't say that. Um, I, I think she could potentially be bred and just doing weird things and trying okay. to fool me, but time will tell. We will see. Um, but yeah, the, the one Sonnen is the only one that really is a, a solid, she's definitely open. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, but I still have three Sonnens that will freshen. They're all going to be first fresheners and, um, they're, they all have the same sire. So, um, you know, in my head, I'm, I'm sitting here going, not that group classes are a major thing for me with Sonnens cause they're, they're still kind of just a fun breed. They're not, you know, I want to be competitive with them and, uh, and I want to be 
seen on the same type of a scale, you know, either both at the club show and national level mm -hmm. um, as my OBs, but I just don't have the numbers of them and, and I don't right. ever intend to keep the numbers of them like I do my OBs. Um, so the ones that I do keep have to be pretty um, structurally correct because for me to choose a Sonnen to stay as a number over an Oberhasley, yeah. Um, yeah. she oh, no. better yeah. be good. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you play the Sonnen game, how I play my <laughs> Oberhasley game right now. And that's, if you want, if you want to stay, show me why you want to stay. Uh, you know, yeah. you gotta, you gotta be ruthless sometimes. And, and honestly, yeah. like you see, at least I have seen some pretty big jumps in my herd as, as I cut and keep and retain, um, moving on. Uh, it just, it seems like the quality seems to be getting better. And I mean, I've seen pictures of your Sonnens on your Sonnen Saturday on Facebook and they're pretty, pretty. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. So, uh, now um, yeah. you mentioned showing on a national level. And of course you've had some pretty good success with your Obers and, and you know, gets a sire and all that. Uh, are you planning on going this year with all the restrictions? You know, um, that's always a, um, a hot button topic for me to answer purely from the standpoint of, I hope not to jinx anything <laughs> if you believe in jinxes. Um, but in the back of my mind, I always tell myself every year, yeah, I'm going yeah. every year. doesn't matter. Um, you know, even the year, what was it? 2019, it was in Oregon. Uh, the beginning of that year in my mind, I was telling myself I'm going, it's going to happen. I'm going to make it work. And then that always leaves room for, you know, as it gets closer and, and now entries start opening up or the entry deadline starts getting closer. Um, even that year, I was still telling myself up until two days before entries closed, I'm going, yeah, I just have to yeah, figure out I, how I'm going to make the logistics work. Yeah. yeah. That's a haul. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was ultimately the problem was what happens with everything back home for one and a half to two weeks because you know you're at the show for a full week but it takes three days to get out there and three more days to get back so by the time you you do the whole sum of all parts it's a two-week trip and you know to find chore help to take care of yep. 20 plus animals still at home including milking um to do that for two weeks that's that's a pretty tough task so uh, but yeah so as of right now in my mind and in my head um, yeah, nationals is a go and it's going to happen. Um, but of course, anything could happen during kidding season or, you know, any of a number of things could happen between now and then. Um, so yeah. I, I hope none of those happen. And I, I hope that, you know, we're all able to enjoy a national show again this year. Sir, sure, it's going to be a little different and the formatting is a little different and some changes have had to happen um, necessitated by, you know, the, the, um, things going on in our, our social world now. Yeah. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, if you remain um, cognizant of the, the ability to stay grateful for the fact that we even have a show, and I'm so grateful to all of the committee members and the, the host, uh, I shouldn't say host group, but the, the crew from ADGA that I'll, I'll call them the quote unquote host group that really worked very hard and very diligently and obviously put a lot of time and thought and energy into making it a very doable event. 
um, you know, you, if you just remain grateful with that, then the rest of it is just icing on the cake at this point in time. Um, I, I'm hoping that it's a competitive show. I'm hoping that, you know, some of the changes and restrictions in the, the formatting of the show doesn't limit a lot of people from coming. Um, but obviously, you know, that's a, a decision and a choice that each individual is going to have to make for themselves in that time frame. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens. And I think um, right now, specifically in, in Oberhasley land, um, <laughs> there's, there's quite a few exciting animals coming up, um, whether that's in my herd or other herds. Um, yeah. There's just so many beautiful animals coming up in the breed. And I think as breeders, we've done a, a really tremendous job of kind of keying in and focusing in on some of the things that we want to improve in the breed. And I am just excited to yeah. see that on display in, in one big ring. I agree. And, you know, speaking of Oberhasi land, I didn't tell you prior to the show, you know, we talk before the show folks, that's you know, behind the curtain. Uh, and, <laughs> and Nate didn't tell you, but Vasquez has his first offspring on the ground. And, and the people that don't know who Vasquez is, he's my overboard buck. Uh, little doken he's got a kid on the ground oh my goodness yep b oh and a doken even better congratulations you could say let the hostage situation end um gave up you know gave up the doe kid (laughs) oh goodness about seven o'clock seven thirty um yeah it was a long day oh my Um, goodness so Well, I'm surprised you haven't jumped up to go well, assist right now, with kidding. We yet, have our right? last. So, we had four does um, do today, <laughs> um, and our last doe was actually our our lone purebred is uh, holding out for whatever reason. Where um, she's at about forty hours right now, so we're Jen's. Giving her some uh, yeah. calcium gluconate right now. Try to get some things moving along, hopefully. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll see uh, how that goes. Hopefully smoothly. But, yeah, no, we got a little uh, overboard dough here. And uh, she's looking pretty nice. I haven't really had a chance to really even look yeah. at her. We brought her in. The kids started drying her off for us and, you know, put her in front of the fireplace. And I grabbed the equipment and the microphone, earphones, and here we are. So I haven't even really had a chance to take a look at her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, congratulations again to both of you. That's exciting. You know, Nate, that you got a doe kid from a breeding and John for you to see, you know, what your buck is doing in another herd and, you know, for me as a, a proud, you are, you are. I guess am, am I the the grandpa of these kids? I <laughs> yeah, guess? man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's always exciting to see what what your genetics do in other herds, and um, you know, like I kind of alluded to at the beginning of this show, it's there's no greater compliment than other breeders wanting to use your genetics for whatever reason they're choosing to use your genetics. I don't think that there's a, a bigger compliment than that. Um, and or people saying, hey, I recognize this because of, you know, that style or, mm-hmm. or you know, your your herd is really consistent in udders and I really want to fix udders or, or, you know, whatever their reason may be. That's that's always a, a huge compliment. And I'm always very 
um, grateful well, to, to hear of people wanting to use my stuff. Well, you do hold the crown for udders, as we joke about all the time. Uh, <laughs> but I think with Vascas, I might be able to steal that at some point, you know, further down the road, not anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was going to say, you know, if you're if you're giving me a crown here, exactly. you're yeah. going to have to pry it right off of my head. <laughs> well, listen, I I honestly I obviously I, I know the quality of your animals. I've been looking at your herd since I started uh, from afar. Uh, I'm not like sneaking in your backyard with binoculars looking at your animals or anything. <laughs> uh, but honestly, with Vascus, I mean, he's an impressive animal that. His his pen mate is a two year old Hay Creek buck, who's big, not huge, not like Nate's animals that are just gigantic. But uh, Vascus is right there with him, and he's a beast and 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 gorgeous. I'm loving what I'm seeing from him so far. I can't wait for his kids to hit the ground in 16 days. Yeah, you know he he really should be big though. Um, you know his. I don't necessarily breed for size because I always keep in the back of my mind, Oberhasley do not have to be any larger than 20 inches at maturity. Yep. So for me, maturity is somewhere around that three to five year range. Yes. And, you know, this notion that a smaller breed such as Oberhasley or a, some people would call them a mid-sized or a moderate-sized breed. So we could call them the the um, the <laughs> mid-sized SUV of, of dairy goats, so to speak. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, but the, the notion that they need to be this 18-wheeler long or, you know, a crane tall, if we're, if we're kind of keeping up with the vehicle analogy, is just nonsense. And so... You know, I don't breed for size, but kind of circling back to that, you know, his his dam is quite large for just being a, a two-year-old this year um, and has really grown up. And his sire is um, from one of my taller does, and his, his sire was the tallest buck I've ever had. So I'm not surprised that you're getting some size out of him. I'm liking it. You know, I, I, and, yeah. and the, the thing with the size is he's also balanced. That's a big thing. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I could go on for hours about this buck, but uh, I'll spare the listeners. Well, and I, <laughs> I think that that's a, I think that's a really good point is that, you know, yeah. I don't mind a big goat. Obviously I have Sonnens. They're meant to be one of the biggest breeds. Um, and this La Mancha that I have, my goodness, she's huge. So I don't mind a big goat. I'm a tall person myself. So anytime I don't have to bend over or put any strain on my lower back to, <laughs> you know, show and hold an animal, that's even better. But, you know, like for yeah. example, Venti, for those that don't know, Venti is a small doe. She is about a half an inch to an inch above breed standard. So she's not ever going to be a big goat and, but she's balanced, very clearly balanced yes. um, or she would not have done well at her national shows and, and caught the eye of a couple different judges. So, um, but I don't mind her being smaller. Right. I won't call her a small goat, but she's a smaller goat, um, but she's balanced. And that's ultimately, you know, the, the thing that you need to look for is not necessarily these extremes, um, especially in a breed that's not meant to be extreme. Right. So exactly. Yeah, you know, they're supposed to be well-balanced animals with, good memories uh pretty much 
the memories of Oprah Hosley has only gotten amazingly yeah. better since the get go. Um, but yeah. and I think we all still fight with that. But somehow you <laughs> had this amazing consistency. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even your first fresheners, yearling first fresheners with just gorgeous big mammaries, they milk. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, again, that's that's such a nice compliment to hear. Um, and others have, have really been one of those areas that I've, I've taken kind of, um, I guess, ownership of is the fact that... Um, I used to be told with some yes. of my Oberhasley, oh, that's a nice udder for an Oberhasley. Yeah. And I hated, I hated that, um, that yes. clarification, that for an Oberhasley clarification. I hated yeah. that. And so I, I always told myself, okay, I am going to breed goats that no longer need that last sentence for an Oberhasley. I'm going to breed goats that people look at and say, that's a good udder or that's a good top line, or that's a good goat. Agreed. No qualification statement of for an Oberhasley needed. And so that has been in the back of my mind, and it helps me with my culling decisions. And I know you you hit on culling a little bit before, and I kind of wanted to add on to that statement, especially for those that you know, maybe haven't perfected the art of culling. And I don't know anybody that has perfected the art of culling, but you know, there are those that are more skilled at it than others. And there's always going to be heart goats. There's always going to be that sentimental favorite, that last daughter of so-and-so or that only offspring of so-and-so. But I think, you know, one of the things that I was taught by my first mentor, Farrell Fields, was when you are culling, you need to A, determine what your number that you can adequately and um, properly care for is. And that number is different for, for everybody, depending on their own personal situations. But he told me, he said, Kurt, you need to cull until you cry or you're not doing it right. Oh. And I think that that was a really profound way of looking at it. And so... Um, I don't necessarily always cry. I don't mean to sound like I'm an emotional basket case in my <laughs> barn. But when I, when I do make culling decisions, I set a relative number and then I start to kind of in my head rank them. Um, maybe not necessarily in any particular order, but there's certainly, you know, that group of five or 10 that, are right up there that I would, you know, those would be the last five or the last 10 that I would dream of selling for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And then once I get to that magical line and anything that falls below it, then I sit there and I go, did I, am I crying yet? Or am I, am I feeling some sort of way about, Oh gosh, this one fell below the line. Right. Um, these two fell below the line. Um, and so, you know, like Sochi last year was one of those that, I got a little pit in my stomach when I decided she's below the line at this point in time. Or, um, you know, in the past I've had some does. Um, A notable one would be um, Rumba, um, sister to Lily and uh, Dam of Roman Candle, who has had some, uh, a really great impact in my herd. But, you know, she was um, seven or eight when I decided that she no longer fit into the landscape of the show herd 
and I got a pit in my stomach thinking, oh my gosh, I'm getting rid of rumba. How, how am I doing this? But again, I think that that kind of ties into Farrell's message to me is call until you cry or call until it hurts or call until it makes you pause and think, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Because if not, then you're not calling hard enough and you're not getting rid of those bottom traits or that bottom correlation of traits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, um, another good friend of mine has, has always told me when I struggle with certain ones of, do I sell this one or not? And um, she always tells me, if you're yeah. doing your job well enough, you'll create better than her. Yeah. And I think that's something to keep in the back of your mind again, as you are developing as a breeder is, or especially like when you sell that special doe kid or that doe kid that you think, oh, this one could be the one. And I don't necessarily want to sell, you know, a great goat. Well, I sold one that ended up becoming a reserve national champion for her family. And that was amazing. Um, But at the same time, if I'm doing my job right as a breeder, Yep. I'll breed just as good, if not better than her down the road in the future. Um, and so keeping those, keeping that in the back of your mind, I think makes culling a little bit easier when you remember like to the point of, okay, this is in fact going to make my herd better. And every time I do that and I do it every year, I usually set about somewhere between 50% and um, like two thirds of the herd stays. And then the bottom one third or the bottom half goes And every time I do that, I then look at, okay, what's my bottom goat today? And then I take them off or call them either to um, a 4-H family or a family milker or wherever they go to another show herd or um, a couple times they'll go to the stale barn if I'm really desperate and they're not moving fast (laughs) enough and milking 20 is just not conducive to getting up and working a full-time professional job off the farm, whatever it may be, but you know, that next day I look at it and go, Oh, now you're the bottom go. Oh my gosh. And when you, when you can see, you know, your new bottom goat is, you know, in one day, 10 steps better than your previous bottom goat. I think it makes it a little bit easier. And again, goats reproduce fast enough that in a year or two, you don't miss them. I, I can agree with that 100%. I mean, I, this year, Granted, we got out of Nigerians and that's why we sold her, but I sold a heart goat. Um, and this coming year, after everybody freshens, I have two goats that are mature animals. One of them very lovely. The other one's pretty okay. I've got some decisions to make and I'll probably make those decisions just because I need to move forward. And I think that that statement that you just made is speaks volumes to where your herd is. And I think anybody listening that wants to sink in anything from this interview. Yeah. It's that right there. Cause that was a good bit of information. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, you're very well-spoken Kurt. I really appreciate that. That's, (laughs) I couldn't put it any better. Well, thank you. (laughs) Uh, So I think we're pretty much at the end of the podcast. I know I have to work tomorrow. I don't know about y'all. Is it a holiday tomorrow? Can it be a holiday? <laughs> so, um, I work in. Yeah, we don't well, have holidays. What is you that? <laughs> you got to work for the government, my friend. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh seriously. well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I it's know. um, it's been a long year for all of us. It doesn't matter whether you're quote unquote essential or 
quote unquote non-essential. Um, I, I don't necessarily like that term because to me, every yep. role in society has its own essential purpose. And so I think we, we all have our own role to play. Um, but uh, yeah, this has been fun, you guys. And I, I really appreciate you inviting me on to your your show. And I've been an, an avid listener and really enjoyed the previous episodes. So um, I'm pretty humbled to be on here now. And, and I just hope that there are maybe some nuggets of advice that maybe some either new breeders or breeders that um, maybe want to kind of unlock the code, so to speak, or, <laughs> or figure out figure out what somebody else is doing and, and what makes their herd well, go. Yeah, thank um, you. Hopefully it can be beneficial to somebody else. Yeah. I, I can't say it any better. I mean, really, truly well-spoken, uh, lots of wisdom here. And, and I, I hope your yes, killing season yes, goes hopefully. better than it started. Yeah. Um, I hope that, <laughs> yeah. I hope. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that kid pulls through. All right. Um, and you can yeah. have, even more kids for it to play with. Uh, but, yeah. Well, but, we'll, we'll see how the rest of it goes. The, the next one is due um, six days from now. Actually two of them are due six days from now. And then the week after that, some highly anticipated AI kids are due. So, yeah. um, you know, ready or not, here we go. Right. Yep. That's for sure. Uh, so Kurt, thank you again. If anybody wants to look up Kurt, look up, uh, overboard dairy goats on facebook he's overboard.com on the interwebs and yeah everybody else nate thank you for joining ringside an american dairy goat podcast hey we'll catch you on the next one thanks guys Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.